following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Romans 9. And our text for today is Romans 9, verses 19 through 23. Um, but uh, I'd like to begin reading in verse 14. Uh, just to set up the context uh, for where we're going to be at uh, this morning. So, i got to get there myself. Uh, Romans chapter 9, and uh, uh, let's begin reading in verse 14. It says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Well, on Wednesday morning, I was, uh, I was on my elliptical, and I was listening to a sermon on this passage, and uh, the pastor who was preaching said, Romans 9 is the most hated chapter in the Bible. Now, that kind of caught me off guard. You don't typically think about what passage of Scripture do people hate? But, uh, but he probably was right. And uh, Romans 9 is probably as well the most debated chapter in all of the Bible. And that's because, uh, primarily because, Paul addresses one of the hottest debates among Christians, which is the debate over the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in the the condemnation and the salvation of sinners. So the question that's before us in this chapter is, does God's sovereignty or does human free will ultimately determine who will be in heaven? And that's a really difficult question. And it's one that Christians have debated for a very long time. But today's passage Also, verses 19 through 23 also addresses another really complex and very important issue, and that is the problem of evil. And uh, it's one of the hardest questions, and one of the questions that atheists most like to to pose against the Scriptures, and and, and the logic is fairly simple. If God is all-powerful, then He could prevent evil from existing. And if God is good... He should prevent evil from existing. Evil exists. And so the God of the Bible cannot be real. 
And that's the, the logic that, that, that plenty of people have tried to use. And so, is God not actually sovereign? Is He not actually good? Or, is there some higher purpose behind the existence of evil for which God has just reason to allow it? And that's a, it's a really interesting issue. I, I, I first really became fascinated with it when I was in seminary. I wrote uh, my, my paper for Systematic Theology 1 on the problem of evil. And so I spent a lot of time reading different uh, resources, looking at different views, different answers to the problem, and looking at different passages of Scripture. And you know, the Bible doesn't ever give just one complete, full answer like, like we would like to that issue. But, but if there is a passage that comes the closest... to to really giving an answer to that issue, it is the passage before us today. So so we don't just get to open one can of worms, we get to open two. And uh, hopefully, we we come away ultimately not just having engaged in an interesting academic debate, but but hopefully we come away today with a greater confidence in God's wise purposes and a better understanding of, of, of His goodness and His grace. You know, I, I'd say to you today, if you came in today thinking like, man, right, we're really going to get into the, you know, all the, the hard stuff today. We are going to get into the hard stuff. But I think underneath this passage are, are some really important truths, much more important truths about who God is, about how we are, how, how we look at all of life, and how we respond to the nature and character of God. So, so with that said, uh, verses 19 through 23 have an identical structure to verses 14 through 18. So, so verses 14 and 19 begin both paragraphs with a hard question. And then Paul follows with two answers to that question. So, verse 19 begins our passage with a really difficult question. And that question is, is God unjust to condemn the unelect? So he says there in verse 19 again, he says, uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Now, to appreciate that question, we, we have to ask, why is Paul even bringing this up? Why would Paul bring up the justice of God? And the reason is that verse 17 said, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? And and so we we said last week that means that that he made Pharaoh spiritually calloused so so that he continued in an irrational rebellion against God. You know, so we said, you know, I mean, after about three plagues, you would think that Pharaoh would have said, this is not going so well, I give up. But he didn't. He was hardened in his sin, and and, and the Bible, and he, he continued on in that, and And verse 18 adds that that Pharaoh is not the only one whom God hardens. It says God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Now that last part is hard to stomach. Why would a holy God harden someone in sin? And, And how then, if he does harden them in sin, how can God justly hold that person responsible for his sin if if God decreed that it would happen? And then, if that's true, how can God find fault with someone who is simply doing what God ordained if he cannot resist the will of God? 
And by the way, we're not talking here about just a simple divine slap on the wrist. Verses 22 and 23 say that eternity is at stake. So, So the fundamental question that drives our passage today is, is God unjust to condemn the unelect? You know, those whom God has not chosen for salvation. Now, now, now I recognize all this is, is debated very highly among Christians, and, and so maybe you're, you're not convinced that I'm rightly tracking what Paul is saying, that there's some other explanation to this passage. Or maybe uh, you, you would look at Pharaoh and say, well, well, all the fault lies with Pharaoh. I mean, he made his own choices, and, and God just simply let him go his own way. God played no role in determining Pharaoh's choice or determining his eternal destiny. But, but folks, that's not what the questions in verse 19 assume, right? I mean, they assume that God elects some to salvation and he hardens other people. They assume that no one resists the will of God. That's what he says. Now, well, what if the questioner misunderstood Paul? Well, if the questioner misunderstood Paul, then Paul could just simply say, no, 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 people do resist God's will. But he never says that. No, he assumes that the questioner has rightly understood him. You know, if if he hasn't, then he could have said, well, duh, lots of people resist God's will. God wants them to be saved, but, but they don't choose him, and so that's why they're in hell. That's why they're justly condemned. But again, Paul doesn't say that. No, he assumes that the questions that this guy is asking are are legitimate, valid questions. He assumes that no one actually resists the will of God. And so the only reason that, that Paul would even ask the questions in verse 19 is if verses 15 through 18 are really saying that God's sovereign will determines who will be saved. That's the only reason the questions would make sense. And, um, and, 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 so, and so our text, and then when he answers the questions, our text goes on to assume that God is sovereign, that He elects people to salvation according to His sovereign purpose, and that He condemns the unelect to judgment. But, but if that's so, Then, verse 19 asks, how is God just to judge sinners if if they don't have the capacity to resist His sovereign will? Well, that's a really tough question, isn't it? And and, and Paul responds with two answers. And the first answer he gives is that God has the authority to pursue His will. God has the authority to pursue His will. So, So Paul begins... In his answer in verse 20, by bluntly establishing God's authority, he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Now, Paul says, essentially, excuse me, you are a man, right? And God is God, right? And you think that you have the capacity? You think you have the right to tell God what he is doing is unjust? You know, it's interesting, God had the same response when, when Job, later on in his story, began to accuse God of injustice. And so, in Job chapter 40, verses 7 through 9, 
uh, God says to Job, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me, Job, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? And God spends four chapters, Job's 38 through 41, uh, just asking these sharp questions of Job over and over and over. And, and God says, Job, I refuse to be interrogated by, by my creation like you. I am God. I am the Lord. You are my creation. You answer to me. I do not answer to you. Now, now that might sound really harsh. But, but understanding that authority structure, where God stands and where I stand, is really important. And, and I think every parent, teacher, and coach understands that, that this simple basic concept. You know, that, that, that you can't have a healthy home environment if parents don't establish a, a clear authority structure, right? Like, like if everyone just kind of feels like they can do what they want and kids can get by with anything and mom and dad don't demand respect and kids don't give it, then, then everything's chaos. You know, the same goes for a classroom. Have you ever been in a class with a teacher who can't manage the classroom or observed a classroom where the teacher can't manage kids? I mean, it's a mess. It's frustrating for everyone, not just the teacher. Everyone is in a bad mood. And so both a home and a classroom, a team, all those various contexts, that they all function best when, when the authority clearly establishes who's in role, who's in charge, and, 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 and everyone follows that lead. So, so don't look at verse 20 as harsh, and especially not as, as if God is just kind of like, you know, pulling the, because I said so card, and he doesn't actually have a good answer. No. Understanding authority is vital to a healthy relationship with God. It is my responsibility to honor Him as Lord and Creator. And I have to believe that He is wise and good. And so I don't have to understand everything that God does. And God is not obligated to explain everything He does to me. No, rather, I can know Him and I can trust Him and I submit to Him as my Lord and Creator and Savior. So, so when life gets hard, and you are tempted to be angry and bitter against God, don't let yourself go there. Now, now as I said last week, we, we should always feel free to, to humbly bring our questions to God, or to bring them to the Scriptures, or to bring them to a wise and godly counselor who can help us understand a, a biblical perspective but refuse to entertain any thought that God is wrong or that what God does is evil. Refuse to sit in judgment on God. Refuse to ever become bitter or angry at the Lord because He is the Lord. And, and His understanding is infinitely greater than ours. And, and so... And so Paul first responds by defining the authority structure. And, and, and then, with that foundation, he follows with an important perspective on God's ways. And he tells us in the rest of verses 20 and 21 
that God has the right to use us as he pleases. So, so he says there, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, those statements there uh, draw uh, on a fairly common Old Testament analogy that both Isaiah and Jeremiah use. So, Isaiah 29, verses 15 and 16 say, uh, God says, Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord, and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. Now now what Isaiah is doing here is he is confronting people for thinking that they are on an equal plane with God. That there's things they do that God doesn't see and things they can get by with. And, and for thinking that, that somehow uh, they are, are, have equal, equal understanding and, and in all these various things compared to the Lord. And so they don't have to obey His will. And, and, and so Isaiah pulls out the, the potter and clay illustration to, to make the point that there is a massive gap between infinite God and His creation. And Paul's doing the same thing in our passage. The potter and the clay are not equals. They're different from each other. I mean, one is highly intelligent and valuable. The other is a clump of wet dirt. One is the Creator. And the other is His creation. And so He is free to use that lump of clay however He desires. And specifically, Paul makes the argument that the potter is free to use a portion of the clay for honorable use. You know, let's say he makes a beautiful vase that's going to be set up in a prominent place in a beautiful building. And he's free, when he's done with it, making that pot, to take the rest of the clay and to make a bedpan or, or some other pot or jar that, 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 that has less honorable use and is not as attractive. And no one thinks that the potter is unfair to do that. Now, I love the sarcasm of verse 20. When was the last time you heard a a chunk of clay say, Hey, why did you make me like this? It's absurd. You know, I've I've, I've never done pottery. You know, there was a pottery class in my high school, and, you know, it was supposed to be easy credit, and I would have failed pottery, all right? I would have failed. But, but... You know, my, the best, so the best illustration I can think of for myself is, is, is a piece of firewood, you know, so, so I've never made pottery, but I've thrown lots of logs in my wood stove. And I've never held a log with the door of my wood stove open and thought, you know, I, I feel really bad that I'm not giving this log a chance to be a beautiful table. This poor log. And I've, and I've certainly never had a log speak back to me and say, hey! I have the right to be a table. No. It's a log. And and God is saying that the gap between Him and me, the gap between God and you, is just as great. In fact, it is greater because God is infinite. And, And therefore, God has the right 
Or, or more specifically here, the authority to do with me what he pleases. And so he has the right to make one vessel for honor. And, and that's a clearly here referring to the elect. You know, God shapes them to, to be beautiful. He, he showers his grace on them. He, he shows his favor to them. And he displays his glory in them in a magnificent way. And so his work of grace in the elect is a beautiful demonstration of his sovereign power. And he also has the right to make another vessel for common or dishonorable use. And God makes this person knowing that he will rebel against God's will. And God plans to let that person go down a path of rebellion and to judge him for his sin. Now I want to be clear that that sinner freely rebels against God. But God has the right to make him for that purpose. Now, we don't naturally like that, right? Especially when that's not just an idea in theory. It's someone that we love. Someone that we care about. And I'm not going to pretend it's easy to digest what God is saying here. But folks, we we always have to be careful to make sure that we let the Bible correct the way I think. Not that we are trying to correct the Bible or or trying to strain the Bible to say what we want it to say. And so, despite what our culture says, you are not the most important person in the universe. And neither is anyone else in this room. You know, or to think, you know, despite what Mormonism teaches, we're not just a few steps behind God on our path to glory and magnificence and deity no there is an infinite gap between the creator lord and us his creation and and therefore god is not obligated to give everyone an equal chance he is certainly not obligated to give to bring everyone to heaven no our creator god has every right to do with us whatever He pleases. Now, I want to be clear that there is not just an infinite range of things that God could do. All right? We we talked last Sunday night about the fact that God is truly righteous. All right? So so He is bound by His own righteous character. So so when we we read these verses, uh, we shouldn't then jump to the conclusion that God is some pragmatic politician, you know, whose morals just shift to whatever is going to get Him the most votes. No, God is truly righteous. And He always does what is righteous. But but God's character alone binds Him. I don't have any authority to judge Him. Instead, He has the authority to do what pleases Him and what fulfills His righteous will. So, you don't have to agree with me on election. That's, That's fine. But we have to affirm God's free authority. He is the potter, and we are the clay. And so I'd like to make three quick applications of this before we move on. And the first is that we need to see God as big and see ourselves as small. You know, we come into this world with a big me theology, right? I mean, my one-year-old thinks the world revolves around him. And you were born the same way. And it feels good 
But it is not true, and, and frankly, it is deceivingly destructive. So, so we need to spend our lives replacing my natural big me theology with a big God theology, where we see Him as the sovereign potter and ourselves as the clay. That is vital, vital to our lives. And then secondly, refuse to sit in judgment on God. Now now folks, that's exactly what Satan tried to get Job to do when he took everything away from him. Sit in judgment on God. Curse God and die. I love how Job responded in Job 1, verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, I absolutely love that response, because when we go through trials, here's what we want to say. Well, the Lord took, because the Lord has something much better for me. But that's not what Job says. He says, the Lord is free to take just as much as the Lord is free to give. And so, blessed be the name of the Lord, whatever God does. And so, Job understands that his submission to God does not depend on God giving him what he wants. He doesn't bargain with God. He doesn't question God. He simply submits to his will. And so, as hard as it sometimes is, refuse to the temptation to judge God or to be embittered against him. And then a third application is, humbly embrace all of God's will. And and then the next chapter, after after, uh, Satan then took Job's health, um, verses 9 and 10 say, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, Shall we indeed accept good from God? and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job says that we can't just embrace the pleasant parts of God's will. We have to accept all of it. And I know that some of you are enduring some really hard times, maybe even right now, and there's deep burdens on your soul. And they're difficult to accept. But as hard as it is, don't run from God's purpose. Don't pretend that it's not there. If we're going to accept good from the hand of God, we must accept the hard things as well. Because He is the potter. And He has the right to do with me whatever He pleases. And so embrace Him. And embrace all of His purpose, no matter what it may be. So so God has the authority to pursue His will. And and folks, that is just a crucial, crucial just concept that we've got to to embrace in our minds for for the the issue at stake in this text, but, but all of life and all of theology. Embracing the authority and the right of God. The absolute authority and right of God. And then the second answer that Job gives, or excuse me, Paul, Paul gives, is God has a good purpose. God has a good purpose, which is His glory. So so look at what he says in verses 22 and 23. It says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, now these verses are, are really important because someone might reply to Paul's first answer by saying, well, sure, all right, the potter can do whatever he wants with a piece of clay. But why in the world would he create a, a pot simply to drop it on the floor and destroy it? That makes no sense. A, a righteous God must have a good purpose behind what he does. And so Paul responds here with the fullest answer we have in Scripture to the problem of evil and, and to God's purpose in election that, that is recorded in Scripture. And, and I must say, that, that while these verses are structured as hypothetical, so you can look at verse 22, he says, you know, what if? Uh, they're, they're structured as hypotheticals, but, but none of this is intended to just be a hypothetical. This is God's purpose. I think what Paul is doing here, he sets up the passage the way he does because he knows this is hard to accept. And so he, he takes a gentler approach in, in presenting it to us to essentially invite us in to, to what he is thinking, invite us into our logic uh, so that we can really consider it and embrace it. And, and notice that at the center of this logic is the glory of God. So, so what does verse 22 say is God's purpose for the unelect? It is to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. And verse 23 says, very specifically, uh, that uh, that, that God's purpose is to make known the riches of His glory. All right? So, so God's highest purpose, God's highest purpose in all the universe, God's greatest goal in everything He does is to make His glory known. All right? Everything is about the glory of God. And of course, we, we talk about that all the time. We, we talk about the fact that we want to glorify God above everything else. But, but, but verse 22, especially, I mean, like, like maybe no other verse in the Bible, presses us to appreciate the value of the glory of God in a way that is hard for us to comprehend. So, so let's discuss God's glory in judgment. God's glory in judgment. And I want to go ahead and just note a subtle but, but very significant difference between verses 22 and 23. So, so verse 23 uh, says very specifically that God prepared beforehand the vessels of mercy. Now, now that's in the active voice. And so, and so he's saying there that God is the agent who makes the vessel of mercy. But when verse 22 says that the vessels of wrath were prepared for destruction, Paul uses the passive voice. And that's subtle, but it's very important. That, that God does not take the same active role in, in creating a vessel of wrath that He does in creating a vessel of mercy. You know, God's decree stands over both. You know, there's, there's nothing in the universe that is happening outside the sovereign purpose of God. But He is righteous. And yes, he, he created the conditions. He created the world. God was not surprised by Satan's rebellion. He wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve's rebellion. The Bible says He, 
He, he ordained the crucifixion of Christ before the foundation of the world. So, so, so he knew it all was coming. And he planned for it all. He is sovereign over it all. But he did not create evil. And he never tempts us with evil. The Bible is abundantly clear with that. So, so it's very important as we, as we try and walk through these really hard things which stretch our brains that we hold on to the anchor of the righteousness of God. God is truly righteous. His purposes are always just. So, so that said, this verse describes God's purpose in creating the unelect and His patience in not destroying them immediately. And, and notice that the language and thought of verse 22 are very similar to what He just said in verse 17. So, so why did God raise up Pharaoh? And, and why... Did God not just destroy him immediately or bring him to his knees immediately? Well, it was because of the surpassing value of his glory. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that there would be ten plagues and not one, so, so that his glory, verse 17 says, would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I mean, God's glory was worth the delay. It was worth the misery and worth all the suffering. And verse 22 says that God's glory also drives his purpose for the unelect. He patiently endures. Instead of destroying them immediately to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. Now, now by the way, a wrath here is really representative of of several attributes of God. So, So God's judgment demonstrates his righteousness it demonstrates his justice it demonstrates his knowledge and understanding and just as god's power was clearly displayed in the exodus god's power is clearly displayed in judgment i mean you look at the book of revelation the book of revelation is a testament to the power of god as he comes down and destroys evil Satan, Antichrist, everything in rebellion against him. So so why does evil exist? Why is there suffering in the world? Why didn't God destroy Satan the moment he had that thought of rebelling against him? Why does God create so many people whom he knows will never be saved? And Paul says the ultimate reason is is his glory. Now, I recognize that's hard to stomach. You know, we want to ask, well, does God not appreciate how much evil and suffering are in the world? How could God allow that? You know, and, and, and we might go so far as to think how twisted and selfish of God to do that. You know, if some earthly king did this, you know, just subjected his people to misery so that he could make himself look good, we would think he was demented and sick. So so is God demented and sick? Well, I don't have a a golden ticket today that just, oh, puts all of your concerns and answers all of our questions and makes all this make sense. But, But the Bible clearly says that God's glory is worth it all. Now, now, we struggle to see that. In fact, we, we can't fully grasp that. But our inability to appreciate the value of the glory of God 
does not mean that it doesn't have that value. In Revelation, in Revelation, you know, I think is very helpful here because someday we are going to surround the throne of God. We are going to see God in His glory and we are going to look down as He reigns terror and judgment on the world. And does Revelation say that we're going to sit there and feel bad for all the things that are happening on the earth? No. It says we will praise Him for His judgment. We will worship Him passionately as He does what is right and just and true. And so we have to, by faith, accept the fact that that I can't yet at this point appreciate the value of the glory of God and how it is worth all that takes place in the world, but it is. And rather than being angry at God's purpose, we should pray that God would teach us to value His glory as He does. And we should desire then that, that God would, would, would you know, even if, even if I have to be uncomfortable, I want God to show me His glory and cause me to understand who He is. There is no mission in your life more valuable than to understand, see, display, and glorify God for His power in all the world. That's why we're here. We are here for His glory. And so I want to become like Christ. I want to to manifest His glory in my life. I want to see His glory. I want to proclaim His glory in sharing the gospel with others. I mean, it should should fire you up. You know, when when you watch a a football game and there are 70,000 people there, and the vast majority of them do not worship God. I mean, that should fill us with zeal. That people need to know God and worship Him because He deserves glory. And so, God shows His glory in judgment. But thankfully, that's not all. Because God also displays His glory in mercy. So verse 23 then adds, And He did so to make the riches of His glory, uh, to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Now, I want to emphasize here, that mercy is the primary way that God glorifies Himself. So, so notice, as I said earlier, God actively prepares the vessels of mercy in a way that He does not prepare the vessels of wrath. And notice as well the link between verses 22 and 23. I mean, verse 22 is not an end to itself. God creates the vessels of wrath, and He says there in verse 23, He did so with all of them so that He could more fully make known the riches of His mercy on the vessels of mercy. So so mercy is primary. And and that's because mercy is a more vital aspect of who God is than wrath. God is not eternally wrathful. But He is eternally merciful. So, So the crowning display of God's glory is not the judgment of sinners, but the merciful salvation of His children. If you are a child of God, you are the crowning display of the glory of God. And you should stand in awe at that fact. That God displayed mercy to you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But God loved you. 
He sent Christ into the world to die for you on the cross. He saved you. He adopted you into His family. Someday you are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you are going to dwell in the presence of His glory forever and ever. That's incredible. And by the way, I think it's important to be clear then that this display of mercy is not just some you know, hypocritical attempt by God to, to show off. You know, I've got to act merciful so I look good. No. God really is love. He really is merciful. And there's no greater love God can show than to display His glory. I mean, the greatest good in all the universe is the glory of God. So, so for God to veil His glory it is a terrible tragedy. Tragedy. It is good for him to display his glory. And I have to add that, that we could never appreciate the glory of God and the mercy of God without the backdrop of sin and judgment. And just like you, you, could never, you, you would never appreciate light if you had no experience of darkness. You know, just think, I mean, if, you know, let's say that the Garden of Eden just continued, you know? Adam and Eve... Adam and Eve said, no, Satan, that's a horrible, horrible idea. And, and, and that's just what happened. You know, Garden of Eden just continues forever. I mean, had that been the case, of course, yes, a lot of suffering and evil would never have happened. But the story of, of God, our appreciation of the character of God, would, would be so much more bland. You know, the, the, the evil and the suffering is, is what gives power to the story. It's just like any story, right? When you think of your favorite story, you hate the villain. And, and you wish the conflict wouldn't happen. You know, maybe you've, you've watched the same movie four or five times every time. You're like, don't do it, don't do it. But if he didn't do it, it'd be a terrible story. You know, I like Lord of the Rings. You know, imagine Lord of the Rings if men had just destroyed the ring when they first had the chance. Well, the whole story is blah. You know, what's Star Wars without Darth Vader? You know, think of your favorite story. You take away the conflict, you take away the villain, and it's pretty, it's pretty boring. It's pretty useless. And in the same way, without sin and condemnation, God's glory would forever be veiled. We, we would not understand God as He is if Eden had just continued forever. But it hasn't. God created the best story imaginable to display the greatest gift we can enjoy. And so with that background, we we can stand in awe of the mercy that is ours. We, We can relish it and we can worship God for it. So so God's glory is worth it all. So so our text begins with a really tough question. Is God unjust to condemn the unelect? And the answer, the answer is that God is just. He is just. God has the authority to do what He desires. And He has a worthy purpose for it all, the display of His glory. So so maybe you, you came into the service today and you can't imagine that God would send people to hell. Or you can't fathom yourself being condemned to hell. So understand, we live in a world that tries to 
pretend like there's no such thing as the afterlife, but the afterlife is real. Everyone on earth is going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. And, And the Bible warns that if you do not believe on Christ, you will be in hell for all of eternity. And so you don't need to sit there today and worry about, am I elect or not? Because the Bible doesn't tell the unbeliever to worry about that sort of thing. He says, the Bible says to the unbeliever, repent and be born again. And so that's what God is saying to you. Please understand that Jesus is the Son of God. He, He lived a perfect life. He died for you. And if you put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. And so if you've never done that, please understand the gravity of this all and receive Christ. And if you are saved, my central challenge is to trust the Lord to do what is right. Trust the Lord to do what is right. And that applies to every question. It applies to every hardship, the salvation of every loved one, to every trial and difficulty of life. God is good. God is good. His purposes are always wise, true, just, and good. And and you won't always know God's reasons. In fact, most of the time, we really don't. But that's okay. Because we know God. We know His love because He proved it on the cross. And we can trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that our lives are in Your hands. And Lord, we thank you for the mercy that you demonstrated in the cross and in our salvation. Lord, we stand in awe. And Lord, we believe, but we need help with our unbelief. And so God, I pray, uh, Lord, that you would uh, just give us confidence in you and trust in your purpose. God, help us to, uh, to, Lord, I pray for people who, that maybe are, are struggling even today with anger and bitterness towards you. Uh, they're uh, feeling just darkened and uh, dismayed by things that they do not understand. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would trust you, that we would run to your arms, not away from them. And God, I pray that we would hope in you and trust in you. Lord, I pray for any who are here who do not know Jesus as Savior, that today they would repent and be saved. And Lord, we we pray for your blessing. Uh, Lord, help us this week to grow in our confidence and faith in you and use us to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.